Good morning, church. Good morning, morning, Jaden. We have been talking uh, for several weeks now about the character of God. We talked about learning how to discover it, learning how to see it, learning to recognize it in the text, in the scripture when you're reading. And I hope you're beginning to find those passages. I hope you're starting to see those things jump off the page to you. That when you open the Bible, you see references to the character and the heart of God. What kind of being, what kind of person he is. One of those famous lines, he is both just and the justifier. Both just and the justifier. That Jesus came and he gave his life for us because in that way God could be both just and the justifier. There are lots of places in the scriptures that talk about the love of God, the care of God the justice of God, the righteousness of God. I hope that you're seeing them, and I hope they're beginning to build a catalog in your mind of the characteristics of who God is. We talked about, uh, about being them, about starting to take on those same characteristics, and, and really being them and sharing them are very much uh, in the same vein. Uh, behind me on, in nice large print for those of you in the back row is a text that we'd like you to, to think about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's the call of the church. It's the challenge for the church. It's the directive of God that we see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Think about that for a sec. You know, we've been, co- we've been told you go and make disciples of all nations. We know that to be what Jesus told us to do. The last thing he said in Matthew, last words recorded in Matthew, go make disciples of all nations. But in Hebrews... When the author is trying to help us understand what church is like, what church does, what we're supposed to be like, he says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. The church is called to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Does it sound like he knew the church? I used to think that, um, that it was a recent problem that churches got cranky and people did mean things and stuff like that. But I used to think, especially when I first became a pastor, that that only really happened in the, in the 21st century. That it was only something that happened to us and with us. And I wondered, you know, what, what would it be like if we went back to those old days when the church was better, when people behaved nicely to one another? What was it like? What would it be like if we went to the Acts 2 church where they, they really cared about and supported and loved each other all the time? And then I read passages like this. And I realized that in the same vein they were dealing with, same issues, same problems, because the people they were dealing with were just as human as you and I. I spent... Um, a morning, one morning, I was in Florida, I was away from home, I was visiting with a friend, I was there for a graduation, and um, we were all staying in this little condo, and I got the couch. And it was not one of those really nice, big, plush, comfortable couches, it was one of those couches that you lay down and you wonder if you're going to fall off. You know, my shoulders are hanging off one side, and so my arm keeps falling off. So you lay there and you fall asleep, and then your arm falls off. 
So you have to lay on your side, and then that side goes a little numb because it's not a comfortable couch. And then you lay on the other side, and that side goes a little numb. So about 5 in the morning, I was done. The sun was coming up, and so I got up, and I, I went out. And um, I walked, and I went through, a, uh, through the Scriptures. I went through Second uh, Thessalonians. And I went all the way through it that morning. I had plenty of time because nobody else was up. And um, I started thinking as I, as I finished reading and I continued walking, I started thinking about how grouchy and grumpy the church had become. And I started to be frustrated about people. And I wasn't actually talking about this congregation. I was thinking about the global church. And I started, started just getting frustrated with various people and activities and bitterness and stuff that was happening. And I sat down on a bench and I was having a pretty good pity party. And I was complaining to God, why is it like this? Why don't you do something about this? Why are people always like, why is it like this today? What a terrible thing that's happening to the church. How could the church become this way? And then I finally stopped, probably just to take a breath. And in the moment that I gave God, this strong impression came. What did you read this morning? And I thought, and, I, and this, is, this, is, this is direct quote. This is the depth of my theological understanding. This is the vocabulary that comes to me when God speaks to me. He said, what did you read this morning? And I said, oh. It's never been any different, has it? Be sure that no root of bitterness rises up in the church to cause trouble and defile many. Because you know how you end up missing the grace of God? Because bitterness rises up. It rises up in the church and it causes trouble and it defiles many and it and erases the record of the heart of God. I want to talk about God's character this morning because it is still the thing questioned by our society. Pastor Greg talked about being the character of God, sharing the character of God last week, and he talked about gossip. Did he get to really meddling in your life like he did mine? Did this come up throughout the week when you started thinking about somebody this week or you started to tell a story? You'd start to tell a story to someone and then you'd have to ask yourself, wait, 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 is this gossip or is this is just a story? What's my motivation for telling this story? Am I really... Oh, maybe I shouldn't, right? It's practical, real life that if you're nice and if you don't say bad things about other people, the root of, root of bitterness doesn't get as deep a hold and the opportunity for the grace of God to not be missed becomes more, more becomes better, becomes more better. This morning I want to talk about God loving justice. Do you love justice? Ah, yeah. When it's about other people, I always love justice. You know, when you're driving 90 miles an hour down the freeway because you're late for something, you're saying, Lord, please don't let a policeman come. When someone blows by you at 90 miles an hour, you say, where's a cop when you need one? Right? 
loving justice. We want things to be done to people who do stuff to other people. When we hear about horrible things happening around the world, we want something bad to happen to those people. God, rain down hell fire on those people. We sound like the disciples of Jesus standing outside a Samaritan village saying to Jesus, can we call down fire on it? Would that be okay? But I don't want to talk about that kind of being in love with justice. I'd like to use loving in its other way. A feeling of warm personal attachment. Deep affection as for a parent, child, or friend. Loving justice. Not loving justice, but loving justice. Justice given by one who loves you. Justice given in a loving manner. Our God is just. Correct? Is that good news for us? You know, it is especially good news as we read and understand more and more about tyrants in the world, right? If you read your history books, they're full of tyrants, people who were not just to anyone. They were mean to everyone. The only, thing, the only person they seemed to be concerned about was themselves. And if, it, if you interfered with them, you were an obstacle and you might be killed, you might be maimed, you might be thrown in prison, anything, any number of things might happen to you because they weren't concerned about justice as it applied to you. They were only concerned about justice as it applied to them. They were not just at all. But our God declares scripturally that he is just. And the justifier. He is just. He's giving you and I loving justice. Loving justice. So how, shows, how does the church go about that? How do we do with loving justice, with giving loving justice, with, loving, with justice applied in a loving manner? Are, is the church of God on the planet Earth known for being loving in the way we apply justice? Are we known for loving justice? Yeah, yeah I think sometimes the church is known for wanting justice to fall down, to rain down. But not always giving justice lovingly, right? I want to walk through a couple of stories this morning. But before I do, I want you, I want you to go to that famous passage in Micah, chapter 6. When God is talking to the people of Israel through the prophet, and he starts listing his good character traits and his actions toward them. This is the way I've handled you. This is the way I've treated you. This is what I've done for you. And then he said, I won't be happy. I don't want, I want, you, to, I don't want you to pour out uh, burnt offerings to me. I don't want a thousand gallons of olive oil. What I want, I have shown you. What, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? This is what he requires of you. This is what he requires of me. But to do justly. You know what I like about this? Is that the justice is turned around, isn't it? It's now saying you act in a just manner toward others. You see, I like justice when it applies to you. I like mercy when it applies to me. And this text is saying... Walt, behave in a just manner. Behave justly. It's saying, church, act in a just way toward others. Behave justly. 
flee. Stop for a sec. How would you behave? Don't, don't say anything out loud, just in your head. How would you behave justly? How would life change if you behaved justly? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's, that's the role of the believer. That's the call on our lives. What does God require of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Wrap up the commandments. Wrap up the behaviors in life. Wrap up the choices in church. Wrap up all the decisions we make. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Do justly, behave in a righteous manner, in a just manner towards others. Love to give mercy. Love to be forgiving. Love to give grace. Love to be the purveyor of God's grace onto uh, onto others. Love to be the one who is doing kindnesses and doing goodnesses to others. Love mercy and walk humbly with God, meaning you're going to follow him. You're going to listen to him. You're going to be the one who's humbly following the one whom you should follow. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. <clears throat> there's a seaside story told in scripture it's in the end of the book of john it's the story of peter deciding to go out back to fishing remember the story he he's he's i think caught waffling between whether he's going to be an apostle or a fisherman you know you've had that time when you had door number one door number two you got to figure out which one you're going to go i think peter's thinking about going back to door number one and he tells the disciples i'm going fishing and a bunch of the disciples under his leadership This is the guy who's the founding father, leader of the church. He's going to be one of the most solid apostles, one of the voices of God in leadership in the church for the next generation. And he says, let's go fishing. And the people who are supposed to be fishers of men go fishing with him in the Sea of Galilee. And they fish all night. Remember the story? They fish all night and they catch nothing. This happens. We only hear about these guys when they catch nothing and Jesus has to fix it. Right? We don't hear about the great days when they go out fishing and they have a bunch of, bunch of things returned. They must have been decent fishermen. They made a living at it. You know, not, the Bible doesn't say they were lousy fishermen and paupers because they weren't so good at it. I mean, they had their own boats. But this night again, they're fishing out on the lake all night long. And the sun begins to come up and they see a man on the shore and it's Jesus. And you remember the story. Jesus tells them, casting that on the other side they do when they haul in this big load of fish. Peter... Again, the guy who's going to be the the representative of God, the voice of the church, the the leader of men, doesn't recognize him. John, a little more perceptive, says, Peter, I think that's Jesus. Peter tears off what he's got left of his clothes and jumps in the water and swims to shore. Sure enough, it's Jesus. They have fish for breakfast. Not a big fan of fish for breakfast. They have fish for breakfast along the shore with Jesus. And the story picks up at the end with these things. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I know preachers have argued that he's saying, do you love me more than the other disciples? I don't. I think that he's asking him, do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than the lake? Do you love me more than the net in your hand, the smell of the water in the morning? Do you love me more than sitting out in the lake at night talking with your friends while the nets drag along through the, through the, the, the lake? Do you love me more than this? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. You know this is repeated three times. But I just want you to hear Jesus' answer. 
If you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of those I love. Have you ever seen anyone that he doesn't love? So what does that do to who we take care of? There's another story with Peter by the sea. It takes place down in the Mediterranean. He's in the little city of Joppa. He's been there. He's just done some amazing stuff. He's been to Lydda and he healed a person who was sick. He's been to Joppa and he's just raised Dorcas from the dead. Pretty spectacular things are happening. Words getting around that Peter's in the neighborhood. Peter stays in the house of a man named Simon who was a tanner. And I need you to stop for a second. Peter's a pretty uptight disciple. When we see him earlier in Acts, remember the people from Jerusalem come and they say, oh, you know, you can't be with these Gentiles. And Peter gets up from the Gentile table, moves over and sits down at the Jew table. Because he doesn't think that maybe he should be hanging around with these Gentiles. I've got to sit over with my own people, them, us. Right? This is our man Peter, leader of the church, voice of God, stalwart of Christian experience. Aren't you glad God picked guys like that? Because he looks more like us. He's in the home of Simon the Tanner. Jews didn't stay in the homes of Tanners. You know why? Because Tanners were almost perpetually unclean. Even a Jewish Tanner, what's he touching every single day? carcasses of dead animals remember you had to go wash yourself wash your clothes and be separated from the people for a couple of days before you were clean after touching a dead animal this guy's doing it as a way of living so jews didn't typically hang out with tanners you know what this says to me peter's kind of relaxing a little bit about that stress he has about who's going to touch him and how he might become unclean he's kind of getting a little bit more comfortable that his cleanliness comes from God, not from what touches him. That it's what comes from the inside. It's what goes into the inside that make the difference. So Peter's staying in the home of Simon the Tanner. And at Caesarea, nearby, Joppa's just a few miles from Caesarea, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion. So what do we know about this guy? He lives in Caesarea. This is Caesarea Marineris. That's a, an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. They actually are missing something. Down here on this end, there actually should be a palace. There's, there was a palace right here built by Herod that went out into the sea. He had a couple of different pools. He had a freshwater pool, a hot pool, and a saltwater pool all right there on the edge of the sea. <clears throat> Herod liked his comforts. And so he had built, you know, uh, Club Med right there on the Mediterranean. But this is a a, a port built by Herod. If you look at that, that's an unnatural port, as you can see. It's got the the walls around it to protect the ships that come in. There's a gate on the far edge. This is one of my favorite places in Israel. And if we ever get to take the church back to Israel, we will have to stop here and see this. Because it just gives you a picture of what kinds of things they were capable of. This is a spectacular place. This centurion was part of the 
Italian legion, the Italian regiment, about a thousand men. Centurion or, or centurions are in charge of various things. The same name is applied to various people, but the basic level of centurion had 80 to 100 men that he was in charge of. Now, a centurion could be raised up in rank and still be called a centurion. He would be paid better than others. Depending on who you are reading in, in antiquity, it's either twice the daily wage, up to 50 times the daily wage, depending on his rank. So he was probably a person who was fairly wealthy. The Bible says a man at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, and it was in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to who? To God regularly. So here we have this Roman centurion. Is he a Jew? No, he's a Gentile. He's the worst of all Gentiles. He's a centurion. He's the oppressor. He's the one in charge of keeping his thumb on top of Israel, keeping the Roman boot on their neck. He's the guy who's wearing them out at the moment. But he's praying to God every day. And he's giving generously to those in need. Isn't it interesting how we look at the outside of someone and make a judgment? If this guy were walking down any street in Israel, he is likely to be thought of with derision by the people he passes. He walks by and somebody quietly, because they don't want to get caught doing this, spits. As a way to talk about this, comment, comment on this centurion who's sullied the soil he's passed over. But here he is. In his own home, with his own family, praying to God and giving to others. Would you say he's a follower of God? So, if you knew this about him, and you saw him walking down the street, would it change the way you responded to him? Why? As I recall a minute ago, we were supposed to love the people and care for the people that God loved. In the church? Out of the church? Hmm. I've heard the church people I've heard church people say that we are called to love our neighbor and our neighbor is the person inside the church. I don't think that's what the Bible says. I hear people say it a lot. I hear people say we're supposed to take care of people inside the church. Well, sure we are. Welfare begins at home, as they used to say. Yeah, sure, we should take care of the people in the church. But wait a second. When that, when that Samaritan took care of that Jewish man who fell among thieves, he was caring for his neighbor as a neighbor. Right? When this centurion is a follower of God, he's your neighbor. When this centurion is a hater of Israel, he's still your neighbor. See, I don't have a real problem with taking care of him because he's a follower of God. I'm saying, great, yeah, let's go for that. But when he's oppressor of the people of God, I want justice, not mercy. We find ourselves in interesting places when we're talking about what God's calling us to do, don't we? One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. 
he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. I think I've told you that across the Middle East, a, a person in white, a man in white, is appealing to, uh, appearing to Muslim people in their homes and in their dreams. Did you know about this? It's gotten to the point where um, the Adventist World Radio has starting to put commercials out about if you've seen the man in white, if you've seen the man in white, call this number, call, contact these people. Because people are seeing them all across that 1040 window, all across that corridor of folks who... Um, are not supposed to like Christianity. Cornelius, the, the jack-booted hater of the Jewish people, foot on their neck, seems to be a follower of God. And a man in white appears to him. I like what the Bible says next. Cornelius stared at him in fear. I just like all these reactions. I, I don't know. They may not entertain you, but they entertain me every time I come across one in the Bible. Yeah, you see these people, and, the, and an angel appears to them, and it's like, whoa. And I just, because I, just, I know that's how I'd react. I'd be whimpering in a little puddle on the floor, you know? I don't, I'd be frightened of the, to death. One of these guys, here's this Cornelius. He's a centurion of the Italian legion, a follower of the Romans. He's a man among men. And when the angel of God appears to him, he stares at him in fear. That'll put you in your place, wouldn't it? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as what? A memorial offering. Where? Before God. The God of heaven knows you, man. He knows who you are. God has sheep that are not of this fold. Here's this guy. He's not... He's not a Jewish person. He's not a follower of God as far as anybody can tell. He's Roman. Look, he wears the uniform every day. He straps on his helmet and his boots. He goes to work and he represents somebody who's opposed to God. Do you know you couldn't even be a Christian and be recruited into the army? You had to, I guess, get converted after you were in. Here's Cornelius. And his prayers are being heard by God. And his care, his behavior that is just and moral and graceful towards others, is recognized in the throne room of heaven. Just like mine and yours. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon a Tanner whose house is by the sea. I like that. I like that Peter stayed with a guy who lived by the ocean. Have you been to the Mediterranean? It's nice. Warm. Warm water. Warm air. You do not have to be living in a cave, freezing to death somewhere in Alaska to be a follower of God. You can have 300 count sheets. <laughs> God is not all calling all of us to suffering. And Peter got a chance to go hang out by the sea with Simon the Tanner. By the way, I like Simon the Tanner's choice of places to work, too. The next day, Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon. He was hungry. 
It's lunchtime. He's hungry. I imagine food smells are coming up through the house. And he's sitting up on the roof. Just like today, I was looking. I was going to show you a picture, but I felt like it was too distracting. People put these things on top of their houses, particularly in places where it's really cramped. I was looking at a beautiful garden on top of a roof in Brooklyn on the Internet. Cool. You would not think it was on a roof anywhere. You'd think it was just somebody's backyard. It was spectacular. You wouldn't know until you looked at the view and you saw rooftops all around you that you were on top of a roof. It was common for people to go up on the roof. The breezes would blow in off the Mediterranean. He was sitting up there at lunchtime. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Dreamlike state. We don't know whether he was asleep or awake, but he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And the voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter sees what is not a Jewish smorgasbord lowered down in front of him. And he looks at the things that are in there and God says, go, kill and eat, Peter. He fell asleep hungry. He has dreams about food. Does God meet us where we are? Go, kill and eat, Peter says. Oh, no, 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 surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter says, no, 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 no. I'm not going and killing that stuff. None of that stuff is on the menu. There's no tofu in there, Lord. The dream is repeated three times. Each time Peter responds in the same way. I wonder if Peter ever gets these threes. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, arise, kill, and eat. No! Peter, arise, kill, and eat. No! Peter, arise, kill, and eat. No! Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I guess each one has to speak to him. Then the voice spoke to him a second time, saying, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. Now, Peter is still not convinced he's supposed to eat what was in the sheet, right? While he's wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. So they stop at the front gate and they shout, hey, Simon, is Simon known as Peter here? Peter's up on the roof. Does he hear him? Yeah, he hears him. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The next day, the next day. So who else stayed at Simon the Tanner's house that night? Three men from Cornelius. It was okay because Simon the Tanner's house was already a little bit defiled by all the dead bodies, I guess. What's one more layer of defilement? Peter went inside. I skipped some if you're reading along. Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. 
Now, think about that for a second. That's your entrance into your neighbor's house. Well, nice to see you, Mary. You know it's, uh, it's not right. It's, it's against our law, in fact, for a Christian to enter the house of a non-Christian. Would you open your discussion that way? Peter's still thinking about the sheet. He's still thinking about what God said. God said, do not call what I have called clean, unclean. But God has shown me that I should not call any animal, anyone. He gets it, right? He got it. He figured it out. I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I went, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? Apparently they never told Peter what's going on yet. Now we're all here in the presence of God. It's Cornelius speaking. To listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. We've come to hear. We've asked you here to tell us about God. Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation because God has sheep in every nation. The one who fears him. And does what is right. You know what happened throughout the provinces of Judea. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And the power. And how he went around doing what? Doing good. The text continues that he, he goes and he's healing. He's casting out demons and things like that. But I wanted to stop here. Because I don't know if you've been ever called to heal and cast out demons. I have actually been encountered by that about two or three times in my 30 years of ministry. It's not a real common thing, but going about doing good, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Go around the neighborhood doing good. What defines doing good? Is it just the opposite of doing bad? Doing bad is bad. Is doing good just not doing bad? So I could, if that were the definition, I could probably serve God really well from the chair in my living room, as long as I sat still. If I get up, I could probably do something bad. Could it be possible that doing good is a call for us to actually be engaged to make a difference? To be engaged. Now, now let's start with the little stuff. Pastor Greg said don't gossip was both hard and easy. So we'll start there. Don't gossip. Got that one? So we got that one nailed. You practiced all week. You're good to go. So, so you're going on your walk through the park tomorrow. You're, you're, you're walking because you're trying to get your 10,000 steps in for the day. Because you went to Leatherby's last night. And you're trying to burn off the second Sunday. First one's one thing, the second one needs work. And you walk by, and somebody who was not at Leatherby's last night has thrown their trash on the ground. You're going about doing good. What do you do? 
Drum roll. Is that doing good if you pick it up? Yes. Is it hard? Sometimes. Depends on how nasty it is. It also depends on how just you want things to go about. Because sometimes when I walk by the trash, I want the city to see how these people leave my park. Somebody needs to come see this. Look what these people... Jared, come look at this. Look what these people are doing to my park. Stinking kids climbing the trees. What do they think this is? A park? Is that a hard doing good? Is that a difficult behavior that's just and good? Eh. It's not on the deep end of the pool. Going about like Jesus doing good. Peter goes down to the sea, maybe because he just wanted to go down to the sea and he finds somebody who's sick and he brings the gifts of God that God has given him to bear on that sick person's life and they're healed. He hears about a lady who's been killed, who's, been, who's died, <coughs> excuse me, and he goes into her home and he brings the gift that God has given him to bear on that situation and she's raised from the dead. He goes to Simon the Tanner's house. I think he picks the house so that Simon doesn't feel like an unclean Jew anymore because the founder of Christianity, the man who is representing God, the man who is the voice of God and leading the disciples is going to stay in his house. He's going to feel a little better. He's going to be a little bit more, more comfortable with himself and his unclean state. He's the lowest of the caste among the Jewish people. And now the, the highest of the leaders of this new Jewish sect is coming to stay at his house. It's going to make him feel a little better. Just that little decision is doing good. And he's hanging out at Simon's house when he has this vision about Cornelius. And then he goes to Cornelius' house and he preaches to Cornelius. And he baptizes Cornelius and his entire family. Why? Because he's going about figuring out what it would be like to do good. He's just going from place to place looking for opportunities to touch somebody's life. The reason I wanted to do this in a story, to see it in a picture, is because it's an actual, it's an actual representation of how it works. You go from place to place finding the way to bring the best good you can into that situation. We're not all gifted the same. But God brings us to places where the gifts we have can make an impact on the people we touch. Some of us do it professionally. Some of you are finding people every day and you're relieving their pain. You're sewing them up. You're taking the cavities out of their mouth. You're doing some, uh, some care for them in their, in their hour of need. That's awesome. But when you're not doing it professionally, are you still doing it? I have been called to be a professional do-gooder for the last 30 years. I've gone around town praying for people and doing good. I kind of you know, cast Holy, Holy Spirit water on everybody. And then I go home. Take off my mantle. Would my family say I was still doing good? Would my neighbors say I was still doing good? Would the guy following me down the freeway say I was still doing good? He went about doing good. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you go about doing good, loving one another, caring for, 
blessing and loving each other, doing good. And this passage struck me differently today. Well, this week. The passage says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And then I crammed it together. I sucked it out of Matthew and dropped it into John. And it says, Go and make disciples. Is it possible that the call of the church is to go and actively engage in people's lives and help them discover loving one another as Christ loved us? Is it possible that not letting anyone miss the grace of God is the call of the church to go as disciples and love other people so that they can learn to love God. So that they can learn to love one another. Is it possible that the character of God is best represented by a loving family of believers? Is it possible that the outrageous transformation of the world that the world has been waiting for is simply the church finding the way to go about doing good, giving grace, loving one another. Is it possible that the call to discipleship and emulating the character of God is summarized in simply Jesus went about doing good? Do that. If that were the character of God that the world saw, I don't think there would be as many people questioning his character. Let's pray. Father, this sounds like a pretty easy thing to do when you say it. But now when I think about it, I'm I'm going to need some help. Thank you for demonstrating that it was not only Jesus who was going about doing good, but people like Peter, who's more like us, were also going about doing good. Help us to find a small way to start with, or a big way if you think we're up to it. But help help us to do justly, to love mercy, to follow you, to represent your character by doing good, actively pursuing good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.